Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Cape Talk. And a very good morning to you. Welcome to today. Kino Cummings and the team with you. Good morning to you, Chris. As promised, I won't talk about the sport because it won't benefit me either way. Now, in the new year, of course, everybody's trying to lose their festive weight. Everybody's put on a little bit of a tire. If they weren't behaving, they stopped running. You know how it goes. Um, but the big question is, is it true that when one starts to work out in gym, you'll initially put on weight because your muscle is heavier than fat? Quite possibly, Kino, yeah. Uh, muscle is much denser in terms of what's in it and therefore the amount it weighs per unit volume than flab. So as you bulk up, then you paradoxically will see your weight increase. But the key thing here is that your basal metabolic rate, your amount of lean tissue is increasing. And if you're increasing lean tissue and you're increasing your metabolic rate, you're increasing the rate at which you can burn calories. And that means that not only do you find it easier to lose weight in the long term, you, lo- you, you will find it easier to keep weight off. And this is the key thing. Lots of people think, yeah, I, I do feel like embracing a healthier lifestyle. I do feel like shedding a few pounds. So I'm going to change my lifestyle. And they lose weight very successfully, and that's great. But the problem is they then think, well, I've done my job now, and go back to the lifestyle that was there before, which is what ultimately led to being heavier than you would like. So it's important not just to lose the weight, but to keep the weight off. And that latter goal is yeah. much, much harder. And I mean, it's a discussion we had, I think, about a, a week ago as well. Well, no, longer than that, where we were talking about weight and we were talking about um, you know doing things sustainably. So if, you, if you're going to do a diet, uh, do something that you can stick to for the rest of the year and include your carbs include all your other bits don't exclude food groups um i think is the discussion we had right yeah it's not just down to what you eat it is very much true that what what goes in does does determine how much you weigh obviously because if you don't eat anything you're going to lose weight and if you eat too much you're going to gain weight but it's all about a balance Mm. and the key thing is that exercise is the one thing that everyone overlooks a it's incredibly cheap to even if it's walking upstairs you can burn a lot of calories if you just take the stairs instead of the lift lots of times Mm. a day you build muscles and it's the onward benefit having done some exercise because you've increased your exercise you've increased your lean tissue and therefore increased your metabolic rate you have increased your capacity to burn calories. So you're not only burning off calories and reducing your weight by doing exercise, you're helping yourself to keep yourself slim in the future. And it's maintaining that level of exercise as well that's the critical thing. So if you can do those things, then you're going to be on the path to uh, a healthier future. And I learned something else interesting this week, actually, Kino, which is I interviewed someone who I used to work with almost 20 years ago, funnily enough, and when we were very early in our medical careers. And I saw this lady's name come up, a a research paper this week. And she has, in two successive years, her name's Charlotte Manesty, she has recruited lots of people who've been uh, successfully accepted into the London Marathon. These are people who previously had never run a marathon, 
were couch potatoes, pretty much like me. And what they did was to give them MRI scans to look at how stretchy their arteries were. And they followed them up as they did the training and then when they successfully completed the marathon. And they found that the age of their arteries had reduced by four years after they successfully completed the marathon. In other words, their arteries became stretchy more elastic as though they were four years younger than they really were and their blood pressure dropped by maybe four or five millimetres of mercury. And that's that's on on par with what you'd get from a blood pressure-lowering pill. So exercise is a really good thing. Exercise and a blood pressure-lowering pill, even better. um, (laughs) But, Chris, talk about walking. And using stairs, right? And the point I was making is you you need to make it enjoyable in order to make it sustainable. So it's with the food you need to eat, your healthy foods, and you know if you can have carbs, it's 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 about how much you eat. And when you're doing a walk and a walk on a beach on on sea sand, is that good? I mean, does that also push up your metabolic rate if you have, let's say, a forty-minute brisk walk per day on the beach while you're watching the sunset? or during the day, um, does that do the same, or do you have to run? Your basal metabolic rate, in other words, how many calories you burn at any moment in time, is about 60 calories per hour. So just by existing, you're burning 60 calories an hour. Your brain accounts for probably 20% of that calorie burn, and your brain is active at full tilt all the time. So just doing a crossword or doing something intellectually stimulating doesn't change your metabolic rate by that much. But if you go for a walk, immediately you increase your calorie burn from 60 calories an hour to 360 calories an hour. So walking, regardless of where you walk, is great. And the more workload and intensity you add to that, the more calories you're going to burn, because at the end of the day, to make your body move, you're burning energy. And therefore, the more you make it move and the faster you make it move, the more energy you're ah. going to burn. So, yep, if it's a walk in the park, that's fantastic. If it's a walk along the beach, that's fantastic. If you want to go for a jog, that's fantastic too, within the constraints of what you're capable of, obviously. But any exercise mm. is much, much better than no exercise. True story. Okay. Question for the Naked Scientist. Dr. Chris, please explain the plastic-eating bacteria and how feasible it is to assist in, world, in the world's waste I think this is a reference to a paper that was published a couple of years ago, actually. I think the organism, and I'm sorry if I get it slightly wrong, Idionella sacchiensis was the name of the plastic-munching bacterium. It's got that funny name because, actually, I think they found this in a waste recycling dump in Japan, I think. And the bacteria are able to deploy the same mechanism that in nature breaks down particular polymers that you find in plants and things but the bacteria because they were in a waste plastic recycling plant the chief food source available to them were artificial chemicals that man-made chemicals and these bacteria have learned or evolved to use the same chemistry they use to break down plants to break down polyester bonds the chemical linkages that you find in polyester it wasn't very efficient so you're not saying tomorrow we're going to deploy and unleash this army of bacteria on the world's plastic problem that's not going to happen it's a, it's a very slow process but it's much faster than zero and so scientists are very interested in studying how these bacteria do this and how to make it more efficient because the fact that the bacteria can do it at all says well if we work out how the bacteria do it and we know what the genes are now that that are doing this we might be able to tweak them in the laboratory or use that know-how that's been evolved by nature and soup it up a bit in order to come up with ways to degrade what at the moment nature can't degrade and the reason plastics are a problem is because the chemistry which is in a plastic 
is entirely artificial. And this has not been present in the natural world. And in the natural world, the polymers that bacteria have been encountering and fungi for millions of years mean that they have evolved ways to deal with things like the cellulose that you find in wood, for example. Because this is an artificial chemical, there are no pathways metabolically to break it down at the moment. And so bacteria are having to evolve ways of doing that. But it looks like it can be done. And so scientists are interested in exploiting this and seeing if we can make it even more efficient to try to solve this problem. And it's, it is a massive problem. We're making millions of tonnes of plastic. And then there is the legacy effect of the millions of tonnes of plastic that we have made in previous years and which sits in landfill, sits in the Earth's oceans, sits in the soil and may well be or is storing up trouble for the future at the moment unless we can find a way to clean it up. Another question to you, Chris, or for you at least. Uh, you get green algae and black algae, right, in swimming pools. Why is the black algae so hard to kill when it's easy to kill off the green? That's Robbie and Mulnerton. Hi, Robbie. Sorry to hear about your, foot, your swimming pool woes. I don't know why they would be differentially more difficult to get rid of, but yes, you're right. Algae, which are marine plants, effectively, they're single-celled plant cells they're photosynthetic so they soak up energy coming in from the sun and they use structures in their cells to turn that energy into food and that food then runs their cells and algae grow in swimming pools and make it go green and you have to clean it off periodically and try and poison it with chlorine different algae are going to be more resilient than others probably because of an an evolutionary process and also in your swimming pool you're going to select for algae which are more tolerant of the chemicals you put in the pool anyway so it may well be that you've slowly upped the concentration of chlorine and you've selected for particularly resistant forms of algae but why the black ones are more resistant than the green ones i don't know but if anyone who is an algae specialist knows the answer to that then please do let us know otherwise i will have a look and see if I can find out what the species are and and see why some are relatively more resistant. Very interesting uh, discovery, not an alga, but a fungus. When researchers looked inside the nuclear reactor or the remains of it in Chernobyl in Russia, they found fungi in there that were growing on the reactor core. And these particular fungal strains had evolved to produce a lot of the chemical melanin, the same stuff that makes our skin dark. They were using it to defend themselves against the radiation in the reactor. So it may well be that the algae in your swimming pool, not necessarily are tooled up against radiation, but they're tooled up against chemical attack in the same sort of way. Dr. Chris Smith, I suffer from acid reflux, so drink some bicarbonate of soda. I do understand why that makes me burp, but uh, why do I sneeze and why does my nose run? Don't know. But one possibility is that when you're burping, you're bringing some of or or a spray of the material from your stomach up into the back of your throat and possibly irritating your nasal passages. It it may well be that that's then triggering the sneeze. Okay, now another question. Naked scientist, all male mammals have a prostate gland. Why do only humans develop cancer? Is that true? Do only humans develop cancer? Well, any animal can get cancer. Some animals are more prone to developing some sorts of cancers than others, and especially animals that we've bred selectively, and we breed into animals when we select for various traits to make them look the way they do, and I'm thinking specifically of dogs. What we also do is bring in an enrichment of particular genes that might lead to or increase your chances of developing a certain kind of cancer. But... In terms of prostate cancer, the evidence is that humans, by the time we're about 70 or 80 years old, about 100% of people have prostate cancer. 
Now, that sounds like a worrying statistic, but actually the number of people that will die with their prostate cancer and the number of people that will die of their prostate cancer are quite different numbers. So some people will quite happily not know they have prostate cancer and they die of something else and it's never a problem for them, while for others it becomes a serious problem. The scientists are trying to disentangle those two things. So to get prostate cancer, it's an age-related thing. And humans are relatively long-lived as a species, one amongst the longest-lived relative to our body size of the animal world. And other animals, such as a dog, for example, doesn't live long enough and therefore is more prone to developing other problems rather than dying of prostate cancer. And so in our case, prostate cancer is a disease that we're uh, increasing in risk of developing because we live a long time. Now, why does body hair not continue to grow longer and longer on the rest, obviously, body hair than it does on the scalp? Because, I mean, you can grow your hair, depends who you are, all the way through to your toes, if you like. Um, but your body hair doesn't grow that long. Why? The reason for this is that written into the hair follicle, which is the structure in the skin that produces a hair, it's a small ring of stem cells embedded in the dermis of the skin, which is what produces the hair filament, which is a protein filament made from a protein called keratin. That follicle has a cycle of activity and it goes through three phases of activity. There's what's called the anagen phase and anagen means growth and that's when the hair is actively being produced. Then there is the catagen phase and this is where the hair falls out and then there's a third resting phase when the follicle resets itself and then the process begins again. Now depending upon the relative lengths of those phases you will get hairs that are longer or shorter. In other words, if I set the anagen phase to be like a head hair, that can be years in, long, in length. Therefore, the hair continues to grow for years and can become extremely long before it goes into its catagen phase and falls out. Whereas, if you look at, say, an eyelash, the anagen phase for the follicle that makes eyelashes is set to be very short, like days to weeks. And, say, a hair under your arms, same story. So, therefore, there's a limit on how long the hair is capable of becoming before it drops out. And this is intentional because you don't want to waste resources producing extremely long hair that will also encumber your activity on the wrong bits of the body. Imagine if your eyelashes grew to the length of a head hair, you'd have real trouble seeing, wouldn't you? So, you don't want that. You want the eyelash to be there to do the defensive job of the eyelash, to detect incoming material, deflect stuff that's trying to get into your eyes. And, and warn you about things that might be trying to enter your eyes by vibrating them and then get out of the way. So it's horses for courses and that program is set genetically. So there's a genetic program running in the hair follicle which is set regionally across your body surface and determines the relative lengths of those different phases. I won't ask who coded that in the first place. Chris Smith is our guest. Hi there and good morning. Hi, hi. And hi, Dr. Chris. Hi, um, this is a sports sto um, uh, question, but I think it's non-partisan. Not sure if it's non-controversial, because I think it is. Could you please explain the physics of reverse swing in cricket, obviously? Ah, are you Chris? talking? Are we talking about why uh, balls when when people shine up why a ball a ball and ball does reverse? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I know that it's controversial in terms of how you get it to, but I'd like to understand. You explain it so nicely. The physics of it. 
Well, I'll certainly have a go, and and thanks for asking the question. We're on to sport again, which is always a dangerous topic for for <laughs> any kind of interaction between our two countries. But I'll have a go. When a ball or anybody travels through the air, the air is a fluid, and it tries to stick to the surface of the moving object. Now, when you launch an object at very high speed, if it's going above a certain speed, the air cannot stick to the surface, so it goes equally around all sides of the object in a turbulent way. And so, as I throw a ball or kick a football very fast through the air, then it disrupts the air around it equally on all sides. If you disrupt the air equally on all sides, there's no net force on the object because everything's being upset in all directions equally. But at a magic speed, which depends on a range of factors. As the thing slows down and drops into this magic speed regime, now the air can begin to stick to the surface of the object, and there is a phenomenon called the Coander effect, which was actually described by Henri Coander, and and applies to why aeroplanes fly as well, actually, and how they generate lift. But this is that as air flows over a curved surface, it's pulled down onto the surface and sticks to it. Now, because the ball is under normal circumstances, let's say, not spinning. The air is going to be pulled down onto the curved surface of the ball and stick to it equally on all sides. Therefore, everything's equal. But if I change the nature of the side of the ball, so I say shine it up a bit or impart spin to the ball as I release it from my hand, now as the ball goes through the air, the air is going to find it easier to stick to one side of the ball for a bit longer than the other side because the ball is turning relative to its direction of travel. If the air is being pulled down onto the surface of the air for longer on one side of the ball than the other, this means the air is pulling back on the ball for longer on one side of the ball than the other, and that's going to have the effect of exerting a net force on the ball, which is going to pull it in one direction or another, and this is going to have the effect of deflecting the trajectory of the ball. And what makes this really hard for us as humans to anticipate, and this deflection process is called the Magnus effect. Is that because it doesn't happen uniformly when the ball's travelling really fast, it doesn't happen, and it's only when the ball slows down that this begins to happen. It means that if you're on the receiving end of someone throwing a ball that's spinning at you, or you're on the receiving end of someone kicking a football, because exactly the same applies with football, then you you find it very difficult to anticipate when this change in trajectory is going to happen and when the ball is going to swing. And the bowler, on the other hand, knows how hard they've thrown it, they, or the footballer knows how hard they've kicked it, and they know the direction they've kicked it. So they know much better when it's going to kick in, and this makes it much more difficult to anticipate that and defend against it. And that is the basis of spinning balls, and it's used all the time across sports. Just watch Wimbledon, and you'll see the people put hideous amounts of spin on the ball in one direction, and it has the effect that it looks like it's going to go out of the court, but then at the last moment seems to just nosedive just inside the tram lines and score an ace. Yeah. Well, there we go. Bend it like Beckham. Um, now, are there any realistic options? Asks the next question out there for reversing balding. There are some, and one of them is to use certain drugs. Which、uh, these drugs seem to have the effect of rejuvenating hair follicles. Balding is a genetic phenomenon. Male pattern baldness is a genetic effect, which is caused by a sensitivity to a derivative or a metabolic derivative of testosterone, the male hormone, in the scalp. And we don't entirely understand this, but it seems that the exposure to testosterone poisons off the hair follicles and causes retreat of the hairline. You can 
rejuvenate some of these potentially poisoned hair follicles and there are various uh, m- m- chemicals that can do this. Um, one of them started off as a treatment for um, a certain disease, got dismissed because it wasn't producing that and then instead people said, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll deploy it instead as, as a, a, a hair remedy. Another way of doing this is to take agents that actually block the effect of testosterone and some people who don't want to lose their hair do block the testosterone signal and there are creams that can do this and there are also pills you can pop the same pills actually we talked about prostate cancer earlier some of the pills that are used to yeah. limit the growth of prostate cancer or reduce the the growth of the prostate in benign enlargement of the prostate which is a different problem they can also be used in this context they all have horrible side effects though so it depends really what you want a head a full head of hair and some side effects or you agree to to grow old and grow bald gracefully in the future i suspect that we're going to get sufficiently good at stem cell technology whereby um, and people have done this experimentally it's just not at a stage where you could do this practically medically and safely yet we will produce from stem cells new hair follicles which will be implanted into the scalp skin and they'll regrow you a a normal head of hair Uh, until then though you either live with the fact that you're going to lose your hair if you're from a family that does because this is uh, a genetic problem or you block your testosterone or you do what Wayne Rooney did which is you have a hair transplant and they go and borrow some follicles from better uh, less follicularly challenged bits of the scalp surface and you move them to areas of the head where there is a retreat and then you can you can get them making hair in the new place and this gives you a, a more even coverage or you do what Donald Trump does and you have them stitch a wig on your head um let's go to <laughs> Elliot and Kyle Leacher how are you doing I'm not only looking, how are you there? Oh, I'm very good. We can hear you. Go for it. Dr. Christmas is listening. Fantastic. Uh, Dr. Christmas, I want to know why are the African hairs do not grow long? Okay, why do African, yeah. African hairs not grow long? Yeah. Well, of course, they do grow long, but they grow long and they curl themselves up. And as a result, you end up with um, short, compact hair rather than long, straight hair. And I asked this question when I first went to SciFest in Grahamstown in 2009 there was a lady there presenting from America called Nina Jablonski and she has spent her research career part of it looking at the question of how different colors hair types etc of humans evolved and she makes the point that actually the ancestral type of hair is to have very tight curly African hair and that actually we evolved longer straighter hair later uh, as people moved away from Africa and the point that she makes is that in order to defend against equatorial very intense sunlight is that actually by having compact curled hair you produce a very strong defense on the top of your head against the incident rays of the sun which would otherwise damage the skin and also deprive a person of their folic acid and folic acid is very important for DNA production and if you have too little folic acid you're at risk of, of conditions when you try to have a baby like spina bifida so therefore we evolved to have dark skin and, and, a, and a good thick covering of hair where we're going to hit the mo- be hit by the most sunlight top of the head in order to defend against that. And then uh, Bruce suggests that if you want to have long hair, you can always use a GHD. Uh, but we... <laughs> and uh, one more question. Do older people require less sleep than adults who are middle-aged? The evidence is that regardless of our age, we actually need the same amount of sleep. Ah. And Sorry, Chris, we, 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 we lost you. We, we, we oh, I'm sorry. We have the volume up. Oh, I'm yeah, sorry. I'll try it. again. Start, start, start at the beginning, yeah. All right. 
The evidence is that regardless of age, we actually need the same amount of sleep per night, but the pattern of sleep changes with age. So an older person tends to report that they wake more often at night, they spend less time if we measure in really deep sleep, and therefore relatively more time in dream sleep, and they also wake up more readily. And this means that people tend to, when they wake up readily, wake up abruptly and spend more time awake during the night, they think they're sleeping less. They're actually probably getting about the same amount of sleep, but it's not the same deep sleep. It's become less dominated by that and more dominated by REM, dream sleep, and lighter phases of sleep. But the overall amount of sleep is roughly the same in a young person and an old person, and the amount of sleep you, you totally need is about the same in those two groups as well. Brilliant stuff. Chris, as always, great chatting to you, sir. Just have a wonderful weekend, and I'm looking forward to next week. So am I, Kino. Thanks very much, and uh, see you soon, everyone.